Welcome to The Workplace, the podcast where we try to make the places we work, places we love to work. I'm Andrew Scarcella. Every episode, we'll be talking with a different expert about what makes great workplace cultures tick. A Navy fighter pilot, an HR analyst, a fashion icon, who knows? Will they have all the answers? Nope. But with each one, we'll get a little closer to figuring out what we can do to build workplace cultures where people are happy, healthy, and inspired to do the best work of their lives. This episode, we'll be talking with Carrie Lorenz about the lessons she's learned as a leader in one of the highest pressure work environments on Earth, inside the cockpit of a Navy fighter jet. Carrie's concrete, no-nonsense insights, learned over a long career in the military and corporate worlds, can help us overcome the fear of failure, address the ever-present issues surrounding diversity and gender equality, and teach us how to inspire our teams to the very highest levels of performance. From the flight deck to the office, Carrie's ideas on leadership and performance just might change the way you think about work. Carrie was interviewed by Anna Bentz, a writer, producer, and future feature film director. Hi, Anna. Hi, Andrew. So what are you going to win an Oscar for? Writing, directing, lifetime achievement? You know, I hope to win all three of those. Well, I hope you'll invite me to the after parties. So, Carrie Lorenz, what made you want to interview her for The Workplace? She's a female fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, but she always knew she wanted to be something different, something that people may not have always expected from her. My favorite story is when she was at her brother's aviation graduation, and they went out with a couple of his classmates. And when she told them she wanted to be a fighter pilot, one of them said, what? No, you can't do that. Um, Stick with something, you know, a woman might do. Oof. Yeah, and she kind of took that, and it lit a fire underneath her, and it kind of got her into this whole no-nonsense attitude that she now has throughout her long career. Man, what a badass. I'm excited to hear what you two talked about. Let's get to it. Did you always want to be in the Navy, or what made you go that route? So I always wanted to fly, and I knew that growing up. But one of the big barriers to that was I didn't have any role models. I didn't see any women that were actually even— out there or visible. Um, I knew that the WASPs had flown in the 40s, but then we had decades where there just wasn't anybody or it didn't appear that there were very many women flying. So it was one of those things where even if I would mention it to people, they'd be like, oh my gosh, why do you want to do that? And women don't do that. Did you have a moment when people were saying those things to you? Like, oh, why are you doing that? Like, you should be doing something that women do. Oh, uh, my gosh. Do you remember, like, a certain moment that stuck with you that maybe, like, drove you to push yourself even further? It wouldn't even be fair enough to say I had a moment. There were <laughs> yeah. so many moments I had, like, a bucket full of them. Yeah. Um, but I do remember before I actually even started in the Navy, uh, my brother, I have a brother who's just a year older than me, mm-hmm. and he was graduating from Aviation Officer Candidate School, and I went down to see him in graduation, and it was a really exciting time. And we went out to a bar down on Pensacola Beach, and all of his classmates were there. And I told one of them that I was interested in doing it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what? Wait, no, you can't do that. <laughs> why would why would somebody, you know, who is smart as you want to do that? Oh my it's gosh. like go into a different job, like get married, have kids. This is not 
this is not a career for women. And I was like, "What? wait, what? Um, so the irony in that, I mean, we had a, a fairly heated discussion about that. And although I respected his opinion, it's not necessarily one that I yeah. agreed with then, nor do I now. Yeah. And we're still good friends to this day. And I think he's seen the light. <laughs> good. Let's hope so. I mean, it's 2018. Come I on. I know. I know. Progress. What were other struggles when you were in the Navy being in such a male-dominated environment? Well, I think it can be really hard when you're one of very few women in that type of environment. It's oftentimes you feel like you have you know, a foot on two different horses in the circus. And especially, and it's something that I still find to be very true today, that um, women who are operating in, in male-dominated environments, you know, you feel like, well, if I just respond or act the way men do or interact the way men do with each other, then that'll be okay because I'm one of the guys. Yeah. And yet that's not okay. So it's trying to figure out how do you bring your full sense of self where there are times where if you're feeling emotional or passionate about something, somebody, you know, will try to pigeonhole that and be like, oh, that's just such an emotional female response. So then you back away from that and go the other direction and become very stoic. And then right away you're marked as being, you know, dispassionate or you don't even care. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like rock, damn if you do, spark. yeah. So it's trying to figure out how do you walk that fine line, showing up very authentically, which I think is a bit of an overused word, but <laughs> yeah. But your full self, so you honor that voice inside of you, and you're still collaborative and a good teammate and all that good stuff. The other really big issue that I see that was definitely prevalent in my military service and continues to be a big barrier for women professionally to this day is that we view ourselves and our capabilities very differently than men do themselves. Yeah. So for example, when it comes to promotions, most most of the research supports that men will throw in, you know, they'll throw in their hat to the ring when they feel like 35% ready or like, you know, I think I could do that job. And they're like, oh, I'll totally throw in for that. Where women have to feel about 125 to 135% ready. So why this matters is that, you know, you have people out there advocating for women empowerment, women in STEM, women, you know, hey, we just need to step up. We need to lean in. But it's there are two sides to this talent coin. And it's not just women, quote, leaning in. It's when you have the majority of men in leadership and or positions, and or in positions to be the ones who are promoting, who are looking at slates that look at individual contributors or hypos or, you know, middle-level managers leveling up, that when they see a slate that is entirely men or almost all men, they go, well, that's because we don't have any women that are ready. Instead of assuming or looking at the men generally on that slate through the filter of, I'm going to assume that everybody here is only 35% qualified. Where are the women? Yeah. So until we have that conversation in a way that brings both sides to the table, it's going to be it's going to be a a challenge to yeah. get the best talent engaged and in, in the positions that we need them to be to be innovative, to be creative, to be successful in this really challenging environment. I completely agree. I'm 25 in you know a big corporation like OC Tanner, and I love it and I love the company, but it's not as easy out there for other women, especially younger women coming into the workforce. What's a way do you think we can get them engaged and get these these you know big CEOs and C-suite people seeing that? we need to look at them and not just all these men that are qualified? So I think that's a great question. And one of the things that I kind of had a bit of an aha moment about a year ago, year and a half ago, mm -hmm. 
uh, my oldest daughter, who's a Division One athlete uh, at a at a college, obviously, um, came home with some friends of hers. And one morning, we're sitting there. You know, we're I'm making breakfast. We're chit chatting, and all of these hyper talented, really really smart young women were talking about what areas that they were going to go into. And what now, after only being in college for two and a half years, they were not going to go into. And one of those areas, almost to a person, was they weren't interested in STEM. And I, you know, I put my knife down and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm sorry, help me understand this because, you know, you had somebody who wanted to be a scientist, another one who wanted to be a doctor, another one who wanted to be an engineer. And now suddenly they're all backing away from this. And what they said was, all we see are all of these stories about how there are no women in STEM. And why would I want to go into that? Why would I want to set myself up for not being successful or it being hard all the time? Why would I do that? And what I actually, other than feeling like I just got gut punched, obviously, what I know, ah, oh my gosh, is all my work not not taking hold? Yeah. what I realized, though, and I think this is a very real, it's not only a challenge, it's an opportunity, is that we need to flip the script. So when they said that, I started very closely monitoring my Twitter feed. And so what do I see? You know, anything that says STEM or women's empowerment or diversity, any of this, almost all of it has a negative slant or a negative value to it. You know, and it's shining a spotlight on what isn't. So where I see the opportunity, and there's a huge gap, is that when you start looking at it that way, you realize how few women's stories are being told. And how women who are in STEM fields and are being very successful, and yes, there are some challenges, but we're not highlighting the women who are doing it successfully. We're just hammering in the lower numbers or, hey, we need to get it to this point. You know, it's not enough or we only have 10% here or 16% here instead of show me the 10% that are killing it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like if if I, if you look at it that way and you start seeing from a company, you know, company-wide perspective, shining the spotlight and telling the story of those who have, you know, overcome obstacles or barriers or, hey, I'm working, you know, as an engineer at Boeing and this is a great place to be. And all of a sudden there's a girl who sees it on Instagram or Twitter and they're like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. I didn't know I could do that. Mm-hmm. Because you can't see, you you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. And it's from, a, so from a storytelling perspective right now and even a marketing perspective, and a talent onboarding or retention perspective, huge opportunity. What are your career goals right now? I'm working on right now, I know, insider information, um, building a whole back-end leadership development program that will be like a virtual or an online platform. So kind of building that tribe, that community of um, fearless leaders and people who can either, you know, share their stories or or sharing those tools, those techniques. Because obviously, I'm in a in a you know grateful for the role and the position that I'm able to have now with keynoting and doing some leadership training. But how do you how do you scale that? Right? How do you scale that experience and scale it effectively so that more people can leverage that and hopefully, you know, find their purpose, find their why, and do incredible things that they never thought was possible? How do you think you create that cohesive culture, whether in the Navy or in a small business or a startup or, you know, a big business, um, when it comes to 
a culture around their set purpose. I think it's one of the greatest leadership challenges that I see today Mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter what industry you are in. It doesn't matter what functional area within an organization you work in. The biggest challenge for leaders that I see today is being hyper vigilant Mm -hmm. on clarifying the complex because, you know, we can talk about the pace of change and how rapid technologies are evolving and, and, you know, okay, we all know that, right? And you literally can't just quote work, work, you know, smarter, not harder. People will tell you the opposite of that, right? Because we're all getting pulled in so many different directions. And all it would take for anybody is is literally for any leader to get out of their office and attach themselves to the hip of a salesman or somebody who works in operations and see how many times they're looking at their phone, whether it's incoming texts, alerts, emails, social media. We are getting interrupted and distracted more now than we ever have before. So when you have that combined with more being expected of you as a vendor, as a leader, wherever you are, if you can't focus on that most important work and understand why what you do matters and is valued to the success of the company, you're going to be average at best at best. And that means that when the economy, you know, has a hiccup or takes a, a little, you know, a little a little sidestep or a new competitor enters the marketplace, your chances of being successful are really, really reduced. So how do you as a leader determine what that focus is and then, you know, you have to drive that purpose hard through your organization non Stop. It is not a one and done. It's not send an email out once and think, well, I sent an email. Everybody knows a purpose. Or, you know, it's in our mission and values statement up on the wall. They can read it every time they walk in. Uh-huh. Because every single day, every interaction that you have with people is is in a micro way determining the culture of your organization. And people don't realize, you don't realize the net effect it has. Yeah. So it's yeah. a challenge for her. For sure, it's an extraordinary one. What would you be doing if you weren't in the Navy? Or what was something you always thought, oh, I could also do that? Oh. Interestingly enough, so under under the, the guise of you never know where your life is going to take you, um, I thought, even when I started college, I wanted to be an international business major. I was fluent, or so I thought, in French. And I wanted to be able to travel and make a difference. And then um, I kind of took a tumble in the rock tumbler of grades my very first semester (laughs) (laughs) in college. And I didn't get the grade that I needed to get in my French class. So my international business major dreams went right off a cliff. So that's that's probably what I would have been doing had I not gotten a little um, distracted my freshman semester of my yeah. college year. So one final question. What is one thing you say to your daughter before she goes and does something hard or something that, you know, maybe she thought like her friends, well, we, we can't do that. It's going to be harder. It's going to, no one like me is there. So I wish there was one thing, but it's probably three things. So one of the things that they've heard me say countless times is, hey, you got to have a great attitude about this. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful, but if you go into this with a negative attitude, it kills your ability to adapt. Mm -hmm. So you 
got to show up with a positive attitude. The second thing is, for those who are a little bit older listening to the podcast, there's a little (laughs) scene in Finding Nemo where Peach the starfish sticks on the tank as the lookout to see like when the dentist is coming back. And I have that as a GIF on my phone. And, you know, she's like all five points of her little starfish is like ah, jiggling. Yeah. <laughs> and I always send that to my kids before they have a big test, a big game, something that they're worried about, because I tell them, play big, just show up, mm-hmm. right? You just have to show up, play big. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the other thing. Um, And probably the other piece of it is just that, hey, just go for it. Because oftentimes, especially with girls or young women, they only hear all of the negative voices coming in. Mm -hmm. They rarely remember the one positive thing. Like they'll drop anchor in the negative and catastrophize all the ways that this won't work. Right? So one of the things my dad used to say to me was just remember the people who tell you that you can't and you won't are usually the ones most afraid that you will. So I shared that with them because you never know. I'm like, make them tell you no. Make them tell you no. If you take yourself out of it before you even show up, then you'll never get a yes. Mm -hmm. So make them tell you no. And sometimes you have to make them tell you seven times and the eighth time's the the charm. So, So that's not just one thing. Hey, that's okay. I'm glad there's more. Sorry. No, it's all good. Well, perfect. Thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us. That was amazing and so great talking to you and having you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we break down big ideas into bite-sized pieces you can take with you and implement in your workplace culture. The first is that workplace cultures aren't shaped in a day. They're shaped every day. As a leader, Every interaction you have with people is, in a micro way, determining the culture of your organization in a decidedly macro way. The second is that you can't be what you can't see. Whether as a role model or an ally, we all have a responsibility to shine a spotlight on women, or any other similarly marginalized group for that matter, who are succeeding in their field. By all means, tell the story of how only 5% of the S&P 500 C-suite executives are women. But also, tell the stories of how those 5% are crushing it. You just might inspire the next generation of women leaders. The third is that if you've never heard of the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs, you're not alone. The WASPs were female civilian pilots who, collectively, flew over 60 million miles transporting aircraft, cargo, and personnel during World War II. They even towed targets for live anti-aircraft gun practice. But they weren't considered part of the military. And though they sacrificed their blood, sweat, tears, and in some cases their lives, they still had to pay for their own transportation costs, their uniforms, and for room and board. It took until 1984 for them to finally get some recognition, when President Carter awarded every WASP member the Victory Medal. Because their story remained classified for 35 years after the war, their efforts were, and still are, little known. But with your help, we can make sure people know about the badass women of the World War II wasps. Tell your friends over dinner. Write a blog post. Make a movie? Actually, don't make a movie. I'm already working on a script. That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and subscribe to The Workplace on Stitcher. It really helps us grow and better understand our listeners. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner the global leader in employee recognition. 
OC Tanner helps thousands of top companies create engaging cultures where people can accomplish and appreciate great work. 25 of the Fortune 100 best companies to work for use an OC Tanner recognition solution. Learn how to influence greatness in your organization at octanner.com.